morning, church. Merry Christmas. It's a little early, but uh, when, when Anna and I first got married, uh, our Christmas season started the night of Halloween. So um, we, would, we would go get our discounted Chipotle burrito, and we would go home and get out of our costume and put our tree up. And so uh, we don't do that anymore, but uh, I, I am I'm very much ready for this season. Uh, something that... With that in mind, that's always kind of interesting every year, uh, is to see what the lead-up to the Christmas season is going to look like. Uh, I feel like even, even outside the church, just in the, the culture at large this year, it started pretty early. Um, I, was in, I was in Kohl's uh, mailing something for Amazon on November 3rd, and they had the Christmas music already playing. And so Christmas is one of these seasons that's got a big lead-up to it. It's kind of like a... Like a uh, takeoff pad. And um, sometimes, the, the longer you stretch that out, the, the more reminders that we need as we approach Christmas Day about what, what are we doing at Christmas. Um, and so, uh, I love it because it gives us a chance to get hyped for Christmas. And, and when Ben said, hey, you know, you're going to preach the week before Christmas, I said, so what are, what are we, wh- where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? Uh, and, and he just responded and said, you know, this, this Christmas we are focusing on the joy of Christmas. Uh, and that was really, he left it open to me. Uh, and so, which is always a dangerous game. Um, but pastor has just finished up talking about the, the minor prophets and going through that uh, series and looking at those. And so this week, I wanted to do a connector piece. Um, something that kind of bridges what, what pastors just done to what we will be doing and celebrating the end of this week, the beginning of next week with Christmas. Um, and we're going to be looking at the final prophecies of the Old Testament. We're not going to go as in-depth as pastor already did because he already did that. Uh, but we're going to just take them generally and kind of hold them for a minute. Uh, and then we are going to look at a period of history that we don't talk a lot about in the church. Um, Mostly because, to tell you the truth, it's, it's not really in our Bible. Um, but we're going to look at that this morning uh, as we prepare for the Christmas season. Um, and so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 4. We're going to start in Malachi 4 this morning. Uh, and as you do so, just a reminder that as Pastor shared last week, Malachi raises a number of disputes between God and God's people. So, uh, the, the people had returned to the land years before. They had begun to rebuild the temple. The temple is now like mostly rebuilt and there. They're able to see it. Uh, but they're, they're not experiencing a lot of the things that they were hoping to have experienced. And the temple that is standing, it's kind of shabby to the one that a lot of the grandfathers or great-grandfathers remembered from King Solomon's days. Uh, and so, as a result, the people start complaining. Uh, and they start arguing with God. And... Uh, last week, Pastor said, like, this teenage, uh, uh, it's so perfect. Um, I, it just resounded in my heart when, when you said that. So, um, but these disputes arise because the, the prophets prior to Malachi, Haggai and Zechariah, they called for this rebuilding, and one of the things that, that they expected to see was a time of peace, a time of prosperity, a time where all of the nations would start to be converted and come to be a part of God's people. And they get to Malachi's time, about 100 years after that, 
The temple's there. It, things are not good. Israel is facing times of difficulty. They're still not an independent nation. They're still without a Davidic king. And they're unspiritual decline. Things are bad. And so pretty much everything that they expected when they rebuilt this temple, they're like, hey, we're going to kickstart this thing. All the things that they expected, they didn't happen right then. And so when we get to Malachi, you have a group of people who, who are really discouraged. Uh, they're really frustrated. And instead of um, remembering God's faithfulness, they start to argue against that God. Uh, and so Malachi's prophecy is to address this, that having the temple is not enough. It's very good, but it's not enough. God's people have to live life like God's people. That's kind of Malachi's charge forward here. And so in the times of Malachi, the hopes are pretty low. Um, so low that, again, they've started arguing with God. And Malachi addresses this group of people. And, and we looked at all of those charges last week. The offerings have fallen by the wayside. Morally, you have begun to do kind of whatever you want in your families. And, and as Malachi gives his responses to and from God in this dispute, uh, at the end of his prophecy, he leaves us with these words. Malachi chapter 4. He says, For behold... The day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. You shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this season. And I just pray that as we um, get ready for Christmas, we get excited about the birth of Jesus, I pray that we wouldn't get lost in the lead up. I pray that we would take what the people of Israel had from the prophet Malachi, what they experienced as, as they waited for God to do something, and I pray that, that we would take that and allow it to get us excited for Jesus' birth again. We love you and thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen. So Malachi's final prophecy, his final words in his prophecy, this is a summary of what he says here. First, the day of the Lord is coming. And this is something that the people of Israel, this isn't new information to them. They've heard about this day of the Lord before. And so now Malachi, writing after all this time, they've returned, the temple's built. He's like, no, 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 it's, it's still on its way. The day of the Lord is still going to come. 
And as a result, Malachi tells them two things that they need to do. The first is, remember the law of Moses. Do not forget where you came from. Don't forget the God who made you who you were. That's what he tells them. And the second is to look for Elijah the prophet. A prophet that is like Elijah, or is Elijah, but this this prophet who is going to come and arrive, and they're going to show up before the day of the Lord arrives. And so what they have here is kind of like a timeline. God has given them some markers. This prophet's going to arrive, and then sometime after that, the day of the Lord. So now they're looking for a prophet. And then the Old Testament ends. (laughs) Um, And and I imagine, like, when Malachi says, you know, God's going to send his prophet. And then after that prophet, the day of the Lord will arrive. And there's going to be justice. I imagine you would go around looking for who that prophet's going to be. Like every time there is maybe a gifted speaker in the people of Israel, they're like, is, is he the one? You know, is, is this the guy who's going to do the thing and, and launch this campaign? And I imagine that there's this rise in hope and joy as they expect and wait for this person. Look for this prophet, and afterward the day of the Lord will be coming. But then time goes by. Uh, and a little more time. And then maybe that generation dies out. And then maybe a little more time. And then now you have grandfathers telling their kids about this prophet. And still more time goes by. And a lot of time passes. And the people's hopes and joys are diminished. (laughs) Like, where is this prophet at? Year after year, doesn't seem to arrive. 400 years go by. It's a long time. Um, It's it's longer than we have, like, existed as a country here in America. There's not a lot of prophecy from God at all, let alone a prophet like Elijah. We don't talk about this time a lot as far as, like, Bible history. Um, It's important to Bible history, but we don't talk about it a lot in church. Um, But it's the thing that ties your Old Testament to your New Testament. In my Bible, it's two pages. One that says the New Testament and one that says the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, And so today, really briefly, we're going to talk about this this short span of time. It's called the intertestamental period. And I'm I'm not like, you know me, I usually have one slide. and so, I've done my best to make this. I hope that it's, um, it's somewhat helpful. But a short timeline goes like this, and I'm just going to kind of give you the greatest hits here. So, uh, Malachi gives his prophecy about 450, 420 B.C., somewhere in there. And then for about 100 years, until about 330, Israel was under Persian influence and occupation. So, they're able to live in the land, they're able to build the temple, but they're still, like, overseen by Persia. But then in 330, a guy named Alexander the Great uh, takes Judea. And I, I don't know if, I think there's a laser. Oh, sweet, I've got too much power. Um, 
So Alexander the Great takes Persia, um, and and I was talking to a buddy, and it, it's kind of like they're under new management. You know, if you've ever seen that like thing on the roadside where, you've, especially if it's a business, it's kind of like oh, it's struggling, and then it has the sign new management. You're like, oh, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the opportunity for things to get springboarded forward here. And so when Alexander the Great of Greece overtakes Persia. Israel is now under Greek control and occupation. They introduced a, a lot of Greek gods and ideas to the culture, uh, and, and the Jewish people now have to interact. Like, how, how are we going to square ourselves with this new thing in town? Alexander the Great allowed the Jewish people to self-govern. He allowed them to hold their Sabbath observances and holidays. It was good. That's a good thing for them. And this only lasted about 10 years when, when Alexander died, and then his generals fought amongst each other for control. They decided, well, one of us is going to get to do this. And a guy named Ptolemy uh, seized Palestine. So you can see that in the green there. He seizes Palestine, and he takes Jerusalem, and he does it on a Sabbath because Alexander had let them worship and, and observe their Sabbaths. And Ptolemy's like, well, I'm going to use that to my advantage. I'm going to take them on the day where they won't fight back. Israel begins to move out of the promised land from here. Things are not good, and so we're going to move away. They begin to settle throughout Greece's empire, and as they do so, they further adjust to the culture. As a result, there is this new push in, in Hebrew culture at the time that we have got to teach our kids the language to preserve our, our Jewishness in this culture. There's also a push for the scripture to be translated into Greek to preserve, preserve the Jewish religion and tradition and spirit moving forward. And that translation is called the Septuagint. And it's a lot of what we use when we translate and do a lot of Bible work. The Septuagint. Things in Palestine, in the land, underwent Greek change. They changed the names of places. They updated architecture. And they're sitting there waiting like, this, this can't be it, right? Where's the day of, what are we doing? The people of Israel in the area are one of the few cultures who aren't totally swallowed up by Greece. It's actually amazing to see how God preserved his people because countless cultures have this, this wave of Greek influence and they're just, they're just part of Greece now. And yet here is Israel in the midst of that, still a people distinct from Greece. They rejected Greek religion and thinking. It's not true for all, but many. Rejected on the whole, and as a result they fared better. So things are not good. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, as we round this fun corner, things get worse. A leader named Antiochus IV uh, begins to try to take the Jewish religion apart. He's going he's gonna to dismantle it. He believed to not be Greek or to not worship like the Greeks was rebellion against them. And so as a result, he begins to persecute the Jews. He removes their high priests and puts a non-Jewish person in that spot. 
He ordered the banning of all Sabbath observances. You can't meet. can't offer sacrifice. He said no more holy days. So when, when Moses gave them all those things and observances, he's like, no, you can't do that anymore. It's illegal. Families are no longer allowed to carry out circumcision. So they're not allowed to mark themselves as distinct from the culture around them. And then, he sets up this, this religious practice where they begin to offer unclean animals in the temple. And things are bleak. It's, it's really bad. Hopes are very low. Joy is at an all-time low here. It's not good. In time, the Syrian forces come against Judea, and they are opposed by a group of Jews led by a guy named Matthias and his sons. And these refused to worship the idols they had brought in. So a group of men who said, absolutely not. Matthias passed away, and Judas Maccabeus assumes new leadership. Judas Maccabeus united Israel, fought for independence, and one scholar said he, he may be the most influential leader that Israel had back then besides King David. And so he, he reunited them. And in response to their stand, Antiochus is like, okay, we're going to wipe you out. And so Antiochus rose to wipe them out. And the Maccabees won by striking their army at night. They cleaned out the temple. They restored right practice and reestablished worship. And I imagine there were a group of people that were thinking, okay, this is it. Day of the Lord's coming. To celebrate the dedication feast, which they weren't allowed to do for about 20 years, they went to light the oil of the lamps. And as the story goes, they had enough oil for one day and it burned for eight. And that's why the Jewish people celebrate Hanukkah. And things are looking a little better. But we're like right in here. They haven't even met Rome yet. That's who's in charge when we get to Jesus. They haven't even met them. Rome shows up. New management 2.0. But these Maccabees had sought to further preserve and separate themselves. And two groups spur from this. And it's important to know about these groups. The first is the Pharisees. New Testament best friends. <laughs> um, we're, we're acquainted with them. And the Pharisees said, the way we need to save our people is by being religiously devoted to this system. That's what will preserve us. That's what will keep us. And the second group was the Sadducees. And they said, well, eh, but maybe working with this governmental power is the thing that will save us. And the thing that will preserve us moving forward. And in both those conversations, there is little spoken about, well, what about this prophet that's going to show up and do this day of the Lord? They're focused on the stuff around them, not on God. They have lost the track. And, it, and kind of, you can kind of see why. It's tough. Rome captures Jerusalem in 64 BC, sets up leadership. 
and Herod the Great oversees them. Herod the Great establishes governors. He begins to rebuild the temple that was destroyed, and later he dies. And as this moment, when, when Herod's death, that gets us into the New Testament. That's where Matthew writes and talks to Joseph, and then God says, hey, you can come back from Egypt now. Herod is gone. So that's the connecting piece. It's a lot of history, and that's the Cliff's Notes. There's a lot there. But what, what I want to remind you of is the people of Israel were told there was this prophet like Elijah who would come and arrive and, and get people ready for this day of the Lord. And in those 400 years, it seems to have been forgotten a little bit. It's, it's like, well, how do we function with Rome now? That's what they're more worried about. One thing is for sure, it's not a time of peace. It's not a time of prosperity. God's presence seemed pretty far off. Joy was in short supply. These are the silent days. There wasn't a lot from God. At least they weren't hearing it the way they used to. Is God going to say something? That's the tension on their hearts. He told us there's a prophet. Where's he at? And what Luke says, in his story, we're going to be moving towards Luke chapter 1. You can turn there now if you want. Is Luke is going to answer this question for us. Has God forgotten to send that prophet? <laughs> like, did God forget? And more importantly, how can we be joyful when things are so bad? How can, it, how can we have the joy of the Lord when, when there is this feeling that maybe God is not there? And thankfully, we have more Bible to read. Um, and so, Luke chapter 1, uh, I, I know that I said that the next thing is Matthew, but we're going to Luke because when Luke writes, Luke is seeking to write a history. And so he is going to pick up a historical account and launch this thing from there. And so with the last 400, 450 years of history in mind, and maybe my like, quick version of that history felt like 400 years, uh, I get it. Uh, Luke, who is trying to give a historical account of his good news of Jesus, he writes, and, and this is a story now. And so, if, if you, following along is how you take in the story, that's great. If listening to it, but, but it's a story about, about what God is going to do from here. And so Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he and his wife... And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. 
And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to, their, to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Don't say that about her. Uh, sorry. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay inside the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach amongst people. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and is in the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible without, with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And in those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. 
And then jumping down to verse 57. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened, his tongue was loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. It's a lot. There's a lot there. We're told about this priest, Zechariah, and he has his big shot in the temple. His lot is drawn. He gets to go in and offer the incense. And while he's in there doing it, God is like, it's time to quit being quiet. And he sends his angel to talk to Zechariah. And he tells him, hey, uh, you're going to have a son. <laughs> And he's going to be special. He's going to have this power of Elijah and he is going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. The children back to the fathers. He's mimicking and quoting Malachi here. And Zechariah responds in no way as you'd expect. He's like, are you sure? Like, and I get it. But there, to me, there's a list of questions first. Like, why me? Why now? Um, everybody's outside waiting for me to come back out. Like, can you just pop right on out and say this to all them, too, so they'll buy it? Like, but, but you have this angel who tells Zechariah, you're going to have a son, and his name's going to be John. And this is going to be this power of Elijah prophet. We have a name on the board. This is big. And so Zechariah doesn't believe it, and the angel's like, okay, guess what? We're going we're to do a time of silence for you. And he walks out, and all the people are waiting to hear from him, and he's like, you can't talk to him. And this moment got around town. And I imagine if you were one of the other priests that maybe had to go in and another time after that, you're like, ooh. I don't know. The last guy who went in could not talk when he came out. Um, but he struck mute, and everybody's expecting him to say something. And after a few months, Zechariah and Elizabeth have their son. And when they go to name him son of Zechariah, Elizabeth, who Zechariah has communicated with, apparently, says, no, 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 his name is John. And they don't buy it, so they ask him. And he says, yeah, John's good. And he's able to talk. God broke Zechariah's silence. And in doing so, he breaks a 400 to 450 year long silence. Ze Zechariah's quiet is, is just a miniature of Israel's. Both hear about an Elijah prophet. Both maybe are distracted from that and are struck quiet for a while. And God breaks that silence. 
And this is what he breaks it with. Luke 1, 67. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, now addressing his son John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give wisdom of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. The number of words in there, remembered. He has visited us. God is back. He's got a plan. We're moving towards something. A prophet who prepares God's people, prepares them for salvation. For this day of the Lord? But what will that look like? Because I think in part of this prophecy, as, as they heard it, they're like, yes, Rome's got it coming. We've got them. God's going to do it. It's going to be awesome. But then... As he addresses John in the last half to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God where the sunrise shall visit us from on high and give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death guide our feet in the way of peace. It's not conquering language. It's not fighting language. And I think many people in Zechariah's time, when and if they heard his prophecy, I think they really clung to the first half. They were, getting, they were getting excited. It's a prophet who prepares them for God's plan. It is the day of the Lord, but there's something on the way to the day of the Lord. And it's saving them from their sins to actually prepare them for it, to remove the thing that stands between them. Pastor Ben is going to be talking a lot more about this, this coming Jesus and, and what he accomplishes later this week. But Luke, in Zechariah's prophecy, answers a question for us. How do we have joy in the silent days? How can we find that peace when things are not peaceful? How can we rest and focus on the birth of Jesus when the chaos of the Christmas season is happening around us? And Malachi's prophecy and Zechariah's story tell us that we find 
joy in the silent days because God shows himself time and time again to remember his promises and promises to be with us. I have visited you. He does that fully and really in the person of Jesus. That's what we remember this time of year. It's the most tangible representation of that. But we can have joy in the, in the silent days because our God it, it has broken his silence time and time again. He promises and we, he has something to look forward to. We have joy because of the hope we have. And so whether we're sitting in a seven to nine month silence or a 400 year pause on prophecy or an over 2,000 year wait for the return of a king, we have joy. Because the baby was born. It's a reminder that God's still working. He's still got a plan. The joy is found in the reminder of God's faithfulness. We still wait, by the way, for the full realization of the day of the Lord. I'm still waiting. But we do so with joy. And we cling to these times of year where we get this very tangible reminder of that joy in the form of a baby. Despite the silent days, we have joy in a faithful God who has a plan. And we'll see that plan out.